Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 354, The West After Canute. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts, and you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Jacob, Jeff, and Ellie for signing up already. Now, this episode is going to have a tremendous amount of words in it that are not in my native tongue. I have a very West Coast accent that you might have noticed, and there's going to be a lot of sounds in here that don't come naturally to me. A very kind listener named Martin Evans has been trying to help me improve my pronunciation, but I just want to get this out here in the front that I'm really doing my best, but some of these things might not sound how they would sound if you're talking to somebody who natively spoke Welsh. I should also point out that this story is going to jump about a bit, and I will be pointing out when these events connect to the story that you're already familiar with. So that way, hopefully, you can place some of these events in context, and it'll also hopefully give you a more rounded and rich understanding of the period. But this is going to come at you fast and furious, and the reason for that is because we just don't have enough information to give you a fully fleshed out story the way we've been doing with England. And so basically, This might be an episode you might want to listen to once or twice just to fully understand what's happening. Because essentially what we're going to be talking about here is the political instability of Wales during this period and where a lot of that may have been coming from, but also the backstory and rise of one of the most powerful Welsh rulers in history. Okay, here we go. So the death of Canute and the fall of his near empire obviously had impacts on his own dynasty. But while King Harold Harefoot was trying to secure England, and Emma was trying to regain power, and poor Edward was trying to stay out of the whole mess, well, a political tsunami was roaring over the shores of the Irish Sea. And I guess the best place to start is in a region we haven't heard from much lately. Wales. Now, Wales has just as rich and important of a history as the rest of the regions on the island. Furthermore, their history was just as interconnected as the rest of our story. Unfortunately, we're also in one of the most opaque periods in Welsh history. There's almost no contemporary records coming out of Wales that tell us of what was happening during this period of about 60 years. But from what can be gathered from sources written later, we can see that the region was imploding. Now, as you might remember, by the late 10th century, Wales had been brought almost entirely under the control of King Maradith ap Owen, and he was a member of the Dinevor dynasty, being the grandson of old King Hawel Da. And like his grandfather, Maradith managed to bring almost all of Wales except for the southeast under his control by the end of his life. So pretty much the exact same borders that Hawel Da had by the end of his life. But King Maradith died in about 999, and when he did, his domain broke up. And unfortunately, we don't know precisely what happened to all the lands that he held. What we do know is that King Maradith had a nephew named Edwin ap Aineon. Now, Edwin had been a problem for King Maradith for quite some time. In fact, after his uncle rose to the throne and became properly King Maradith, Edwin raided his uncle's lands in Devon, and because of that, we can assume that Edwin believed that he had some sort of claim to Maradith's lands. And we can also assume that he was obviously ambitious enough to chase those claims. So it's possible that in the aftermath of King Maradith's death, 
he might have gone and tried to assert power in Devid once again. Unfortunately, we don't have any knowledge of what actually happened during that period, so it's entirely just guesswork. The fact is that information about how this power vacuum was playing out in Wales has been lost with the records. And there's only one surviving story regarding this period, and it comes out of the kingdom of Gwyneth. And in those records, we're told that after Maradith's death, the Abafra dynasty asserted its power. And to understand what happened here, you really need to understand the two main dynasties that held dominance in Wales. The House of Abafra and the House of Dinevur. Now, these houses were actually distantly related to each other. In fact, they both traced their right to rule from the same person, Rodri Maur, or King Rodri the Great. And the House of Abafra was established by Rodri's first son, Anorod, who you might remember from the Alfred episodes. And the Dinevor dynasty was established by Rodri's second son, Kedeth, who also appeared in those same episodes. And by this point, those dynasties have been established for about 150 years. And by the end of the 10th century, the Dinevor dynasty was actually ascendant, even though they were descended from the younger son of King Rodri Maur. For example, King Huel Da and King Maradith were both members of the Dinevor dynasty. And considering that they both managed to unite large portions of Wales, they both did pretty well. But... Now, they are also both dead, and that left an opening for the Abafra dynasty, who really did have a legitimate claim to rule, being descended from the eldest son of Rodri Maur. And so, when King Maradith died, the house of Abafra saw its opportunity, and the scion of that family, a man named Canaan, stepped forward to claim the kingdom of Gwyneth. And in about 999, he was crowned, but... It didn't last all that long, because by 1005, he died, and he hadn't left behind a successor. In classic Welsh history style, we don't know the circumstances of his death, how it came about, or whether anyone was responsible. But following his death, Aidan ap became the new king of Gwyneth. And here's where it gets really tricky. I then doesn't appear to have been on the normal line of succession. In fact, we don't even have any indication that he was a member of either royal dynasty. Instead, it seems like he was just a powerful Welsh warlord. And it's very possible that he killed Canaan and seized control of the kingdom for himself. Because Wales during this period was undergoing a period of clear upheaval. And it's into this same period of upheaval that a man named Llewellyn Apsaisish appears in our story. And like King I then, we don't know much about his early life or his dynastic background. We know that his name means Llewellyn, son of Saisish. So we can be relatively certain that he was the son of Saisish, who was, I mean, I assume a dad. But beyond that, we really don't know much about him. And even less is known about Llewellyn's mum. Again, we assume he had one, but that's about as much as we can say. And faced with this daunting hole in the record, scholars have turned to contemporary poetry. And the poetic evidence suggests, we think, that in 1017 or 1018, King I then was ruling for Manglesey, and he faced a challenge to his rule that was led by Fluellen Apsaisish. And it's possible that he faced this challenge due to his status as a usurper. 
The poem tells us that in response to this uprising, the king led an army from Arvon to Kair Sion, which was located to the west of the river Conway and close to his mouth. Now, assuming that the poems are accurate and they do have to do with the figures that we believe they do, that would mean that Llewellyn's base of power in Gwyneth was likely located somewhere to the east of Conway. And there's other evidence that support this belief, including the fact that Llewellyn's son would go on to establish his base at the castle at Ruthlin. And for the few North Welshmen who are listening, no, this isn't the same as Ruthlin Castle. That wouldn't be built for over 200 years. And instead, he was occupying a burr that had been formerly constructed by the Mercians. And as obscure as all of this is and how confusing it all sounds, it really does suggest that this Llewellyn character was a figure who held some degree of influence over Eastern Gwyneth. And from there, we can glean that there is a fracture in the kingdom between East and West. Though the word kingdom might have you thinking about something that's really large, especially considering that I'm talking about splitting it in half. But the reality is it would really take you only about 24 hours to walk at a comfortable pace from one side of Gwyneth to the other. So in the scheme of things, this was actually a pretty small patch of territory. But in 1017 or 1018, the two rival forces in Gwyneth clashed. And King I then was killed in the battle that followed, purportedly along with his sons. And that fact cut off any chance that the usurper could establish a new dynasty in Gwyneth. Following the battle, Llewellyn became King Llewellyn of Gwyneth. And it appears that he also extended his authority over the central kingdom of Powys at the same time. Now, critically, just because Llewellyn held the throne, and just because he had authority in eastern Gwyneth, didn't mean that he was on the line of succession. Based on the fact that we don't know exactly where he came from, and the fact that we're fairly certain about the two main dynasties in Wales, the truth is, it's entirely possible that just like his predecessor, King Aithen, his claim to the throne was based entirely on the fact that he'd just taken it by force. And that really is the big thing to understand about Wales in the 10th century. These really weren't thrones with orderly lines of succession. The Welsh kingdoms in many ways resembled the early days of the Heptarchy. There were dynasties that existed, and they attempted to consolidate their hold on power just like with the Heptarchy. And those dynasties tended to be related, again, just like the Heptarchy. But the main characteristic that seems to have determined whether someone could claim a throne came down to whether the individual exhibited strong martial power and whether people were willing to follow him. And that meant that this type of rule was very fluid. It was a kind of system that had obvious advantages. For example, it was really hard to end up with someone like Athelred Unred. But this approach to leadership via strongmen also tends to result in a lot more instability and infighting. And even when one of the warlords or kings rose to the top and unified large sections of the territory, they weren't typically able to create a lasting unification. Upon their death, which always came sooner or later, everything would come crashing down once again. So in some ways, when we look at Wales, what we're seeing is a smaller version of the same crises that are currently rocking the rest of Europe in the 11th century. And so here we are with new King Llewellyn of Gwyneth, and he is yet another ambitious new king that was seeking to establish a dynastic foothold in the region. And to do it, he needed to replicate the achievements of King Maradith by rebuilding that same small Welsh empire. 
but due to the nature of how government was handled in Wales during this period, that meant he needed to rebuild it from the ground up. And the first major challenge that he was facing was legitimacy. It seems pretty clear he wasn't on either dynastic track. And I'm sure he was all too aware of how well that worked out for King I then. So we're told that at some point, either prior to or after claiming Gwyneth, King Llewellyn married the daughter of mighty King Meredith Apoen. Her name was Angharad. And in doing so, Llewellyn enhanced his claim to Gwyneth by linking his family to the powerful Dinavor dynasty. And thanks to the nature of that dynasty, it meant he also gained claims on a number of other Welsh kingdoms, including De Highbarth, a kingdom that had served as an effective launchpad for past Welsh rulers who were feeling really ambitious. Now, in 1022, De Highbarth was being ruled over by a man named Hrain, or as later accounts called him, Hrain the Irishman. And the fact is, when you're talking about a Welsh kingdom during the Dark Ages, describing the leader as the Irishman was a slur. And notably, the later sources didn't use the name that Hrain himself went by. He went by Hrain ap Meredith, as in Hrain, the son of King Meredith ap Owen. And that would have made him a member of the Dinevor dynasty. It also would have made him the legitimate king of the Highbarth. But instead, the sources keep on calling him Hrain the Irishman. And just in case that was too subtle for anyone, the scribes added that while Hrain claimed to be the son of Meredith, it wasn't true. Now, unfortunately, we can't say for certain who Hrain's parents were. And if it wasn't for the later scribes, this wouldn't even be a question for us. We just assume that he was the son of Meredith. But that should give you an idea of the scale of dynastic conflict that was taking place in Wales during this period, and also the amount of uncertainty. I mean, here, just in one small corner of Wales, you had two factions arguing over an issue that would determine Hrain's legitimacy. And the truth is, one of the factions had to have been lying here, but we can't say for certain which one it was. But it really would be cheeky if Hrain really was the son of King Maradith, and that was why he's ruling to Highbarth in the first place. But this warlord from North Wales comes along and just claims he's an Irishman who has no claim to the throne. Like I said, we can't know for certain who Hrine's parents were. But either way, King Llewellyn of Gwyneth doesn't appear to have given a damn. Because he was a king of Gwyneth. And he was married to a daughter of King Maradith. And he had plans for expansion. So we're told in 1022, King Llewellyn went to war and he defeated King Hrain in battle at Abergwili. And when he did that, he united the kingdom of Dehaibarth with the kingdom of Gwyneth and Powys. And that meant that up to this point, King Llewellyn's reign had been an unqualified success. In just five years, he'd gone from a figure of some amount of influence in eastern Gwyneth to a king ruling over a territory similar to that as old King Maradith. And actually, the Chronicle of the Princes, which is a Welsh source that covers this period, speaks of how Llewellyn's reign was a time of great prosperity, and how wealth, rather than being only retained by the ruling classes, was instead being reached by all the people. We're told that there was no poverty during Llewellyn's rule, which, I'll be honest, seems unlikely to be true. But it does seem like this period might have been a bit better than most for the Welsh. 
even across the Irish Sea in the Annals of Ulster, we see people speaking highly of King Llewellyn and naming him the King of the Britons. He was doing pretty well. And then, in the following year, the English raided Devid, which was a portion of Dehybarth. And we're told that this raid was led by Eglaf of Mercia, who was a member of Canute's court and the brother of Jarl Ulf, who you probably remember from earlier episodes. Now, there's many reasons why a raid like this might have taken place, but I do find it interesting that the English only seem to take an interest in Wales at precisely the moments where one king stands up and unifies most of the region, and thus presents a challenge to English power. I mean, Llewellyn's borders at this point were roughly at the same place as old King Maradith, and then suddenly a member of Canute's inner circle launches a raid into the same place where Llewellyn had just conquered, and thus where he and his forces were likely even still stationed. I don't know, that seems really convenient. Though, on the other hand, it is possible that Hrain the Irishman was more than just a slur. It might have actually been a reflection of his actual background. You see, there are indications that Canute was allied with the Irish during this period, and with Dublin in particular. And if Hrain was actually an Irishman, well, King Llewellyn just defeated him. And that could explain why Canute's men were now raiding those lands that had just been lost by their potential ally. And there's another reason why the English might have been doing this. After all, there was a previous English invasion that had taken place at the urging of King Maradith's nephew, Edwin, who was seeking a throne himself. And that same nephew was likely still living in exile in nearby Herefordshire as we know that he was involved in a dynastic land dispute with the local Shire court. So it's not hard to imagine that his ambitions went beyond arguing for his mother's lands in Herefordshire, and he very well might have been trying to convince the English to help him regain power and his family's land in Devid. What I'm getting at here is that it feels like there's a lot more going on here than what we're being told. And there's one other factor here that makes me think we're missing a part of the story. King Llewellyn died on that same year due to undisclosed causes. And I mean, it really could have been anything. It didn't have to be Eglaf, brother of Ulf, who did it. It could have been ass cancer for all we know. But the timing and the presence of Eglaf doesn't exactly suggest innocence. And frankly, it makes me kind of feel like we're watching some sort of medieval CIA op. But with the death of Llewellyn, that meant that we had yet another Welsh succession crisis. Now, Llewellyn did leave behind a son, Griffith ap Llewellyn. And people living during this period often assumed that blood relation had a quality that made it more likely that sons would be like their fathers. And given how Llewellyn was absolutely beloved and how he ushered in a period of untold prosperity, you have to imagine that the people of Wales would have wanted more of the same. And all things considered, this was one of the best chances that they had at centralizing power and unifying the region into a kingdom of Wales, rather than just continuing to be a collection of small, warring, petty kingdoms. And so the people of Gwyneth gathered, and they looked at this son of one of the most popular kings they'd ever had, who was also the grandson of another one of their popular and powerful kings. And they said, uh, how about no? And that probably does seem pretty surprising, 
But to be fair, Griffith was probably only still a child at this point, so asking everybody to rally around him would have been a heavy lift, especially if you had an increasingly belligerent England sitting on your borders who were getting itchy trigger fingers every time your kingdom started to get close to unifying. And so instead, the kingdom went to another man, and the Chronicles strongly implies that it was Canaan ap Sisish, the brother of King Llewellyn. Now, King Canaan was unable to replicate the northern power structure of his brother, possibly because unlike Llewellyn, who was married to a member of the Dinavur dynasty, Canaan ap Sisish had absolutely no dynastic link to the throne other than the fact that his brother was the previous ruler. And so, under King Canaan, the authority of Gwyneth was dangerously weakened. And because this was Wales, and there was always somebody looking to launch a war or a rebellion, Rhydderch ap Yesten saw his opportunity and launched a war to seize control of the Hybarth. And King Canaan was unable to stop him. So the southwest was lost, and Rhydderch ap Yesten became King Rhydderch of the Hybarth. And this was significant. And not just because the Hybarth was an influential territory in Welsh economics and politics, but also because Rhydderch represented a new entry in the dynastic mosh pit of Wales. He wasn't on either royal line either. Instead, he appears to have been from Gwent and Morganug. Maybe. We know his descendants would later have power over that region, so scholars suspect that he might have been originally from there. But we can't be certain because, like Llewellyn, and like so many men who claimed Welsh titles during this period, we actually don't know much about his background. And so, we have yet another dynasty being established. And again, possibly entirely through force of arms. Several years later, King Canaan of Gwyneth died, though sources don't tell us how. And if the Book of Llandaff is correct, on Canaan's death, King Rhydderch took all of Gwyneth and Powys to himself with the small exception of the Isle of Anglesey, which was held by the great-grandson of Idwal Fol, a man named Iago ap Idwal. But with the small exception of Anglesey, and possibly Gwent and Morganug, once again, Wales was almost unified. And once again, it was unifying mostly through force of arms under the rule of someone whose lineage was pretty much entirely uncertain and doesn't appear to have been on either dynastic line. In fact, the only vestige of either branch of the royal family that was linked to Rodri Maurer was Iago ap Idwal, the guy who'd been pushed all the way out onto that small island to the northwest corner of the region, Anglesey. But hey, at least Wales was unifying, and that meant that the region could start to stabilize and organize under the rule of this new king, Hridurk. And then, right on the heels of that unification, just a couple years after it happened, in fact, do you know what happened? King Canute of England and King Citric of Dublin combined their forces and attacked Wales. Funny how that keeps happening. And then in 1033, which was three years after that initial joint campaign, we're told that King Rhydderch died. In fact, we're told he was killed by the Irish. Unfortunately, we're not given much more details than that. But with his death, once again... Wales shattered. Iago ap Idwal, who was, a member of the who was the member of the House of Aberfra who had been governing over Anglesey, stepped forward and claimed the throne of Gwyneth and its subject Powys. 
and I'm sure that King Maradith's ambitious nephew, Edwin, would have loved to claim a throne. Unfortunately, he wasn't alive any longer. But his sons were, and they were named after previous popular and successful kings. One was named Huel, the other Maradith. And the two brothers finally capitalized on their father's dream. They became kings over the southern Welsh. And that meant that through Edwin's sons, the house of Dinavor was back in the south, with the house of Abafra back in the north. And so, Wales had shook off the newcomers, and the two main dynasties were once again back on top. And given that there was a family connection between the two of them, there was also the possibility that they might actually work together. So not quite unification, but at least getting there. However, this was Wales. And there were no longer just two main dynasties. You had the sons of King Rhaedderk, and you also had the sons of King Canaan, both of whom were sons of previous Welsh kings, and also Welsh kings who appear to have taken their thrones by force, rather than just through dynastic right. And it seems like they weren't too pleased with the idea of Wales going back to the way it was, with the old dynasties ruling. So one year later, in 1034, the sons of Hrydderk did what their father had done in years prior. They launched a war against the Dinavors, who were ruling over the southern Welsh. And from the record, it appears that the sons of Canaan Apsaisish joined the sons of Hrydderk in their fight against the Dinavors. And interestingly, while the sons of Canaan hailed from Gwyneth, they appear to have been doing this fight mostly on their own. The kingdom of Gwyneth as a whole stayed out of the conflict. It was just the sons of Canaan and whatever northern Welsh fighters decided to follow them. And I know that I've been throwing a lot at you fast and furious here, but this really does stand out for me. Because while King Iago of Gwyneth was distantly related to the house of Dinevor, the fact was his dynasty were still the rivals of the house of Aberthra. So he had reasons to stay out of it. But at the same time... Canaan and his sons were from a rival local dynasty that had only recently been established. So what was the plan here? Why did King Iago stay out of this entirely? Was he just hoping that his enemies would kill each other? It's hard to say, but either way, I'm pretty sure he didn't account for what happened next. Because England joined the war. And they joined on the side of the House of Dinevor. And it's possible that they did that because they were trying to keep the old dynasty in power as they developed close bonds with Edwin and his sons through their connections in Herefordshire. But regardless of the reasoning, what we have here is a regional dynastic fight that was now spiraling into an international war. And in early 1035, the dynasties started to take serious losses. One of the sons of Rhaedderk, a man named Caradog, was killed by the English. And then one of Edwin's sons, Meredith, was killed by one of the sons of Canaan. Both dynasties were losing heirs now, but critically, King Huel ap Edwin survived. And so while there were losses, the Dinevor dynasty continued to hold on to power in the south, despite the costs that it was paying. And likely because King Iago decided to stay out of the conflict entirely, the Aberthra dynasty was also still in power in the north. So the old dynasties with direct ties to Rodri Maur were still on top in Wales. Then King Canute died, and English interventionism stopped on a dime. 
And actually, with the English now distracted with internal issues and that whole succession crisis thing, that gave Wales a chance for some real stability, especially considering that the thrones of Wales were now under the control of two extended cousins. So things solidified a little bit for four whole years. And Canute's death didn't just impact English interventionism. It also had an impact on the Irish. King Citric Silkbeard had been ruling over Dublin for nearly 40 years at this point. And as you know, at least recently, Citric had been either an ally of or a client king to King Canute. We've seen them working together on several occasions, and we even see him popping into Canute's court from time to time. Dublin was an important part of Scandinavian power in the region, and it asserted that power in the Irish Sea and over the neighboring kingdoms. And this cooperation between Citric and Canute appears to have been mutually beneficial. Citric helped maintain Canute's Scandinavian hegemony, and Canute helped Citric maintain his grip on Dublin. And sure enough, this actually worked really well. I mean, the guy ruled for nearly 40 years. And we've already seen how that cooperation enabled them to seriously impact Wales. But now Canute was dead. And so now, rather than interfering in Welsh politics, instead, suddenly, Citric found himself dangerously exposed and a tempting target for his enemies. And one of the circling vultures was a man named Ekmarakak Ragnelson. Now, some of you might remember Ekmarakak as one of the kings who was suspected of having submitted to Canute alongside Macbeth. And some scholars also suspect that his name, his position, and the fact he's Ragnelson or Mac Ragnall are all signs that point to the fact that he was the son of Ragnall MacGodfrey, the king of the Isles. And if true, it means his family has played a significant role in the naval control over the region. And it also means that Ekmarakuk would have been an extended family member of the Eever dynasty, which would have made him a relative of the legendary King Ivor the Boneless. Because at this point, it really looks like it was Vikings all the way down. But even if his father wasn't the King of the Isles with a dynastic link to one of the kings of the great heathen army, and instead was, I don't know, some random fisherman? The fact is that Ekmarakuk appears to have been a powerful man in the region by this point in his life. And that means he was in a prime position to take advantage of the chaos that followed Canute's death. And lately, Ekmarakuk had been currying favor with the nearby king of Munster. And this allyship was probably cemented when the king of Munster married Cat Ingen Ragnall, who was widely believed to be Ekmarakuk's sister. So we have a new power that was starting to flex its muscles, and it happened right at the same time when Citric found himself sitting alone without Canute to come and help him. And sure enough, in 1036, the Annals of Ulster tell us that King Citric was forced to flee Dublin, and Ekmarakuk became the new king of Dublin. The shockwaves of Canute's death were still reverberating throughout the region, and this one had the benefit of potentially alleviating a pressure point from the nearby Welsh kingdoms. And then, in the middle of this brief reprieve from chaos, we're told that King Iago ap Idwal died in 1039. And the Welsh sources don't say a word about how he died, which is kind of weird. But the Annals of Ulster and the Annals of Tigernach tell us that actually, he was killed by his own people by the people of Gwyneth. And while we're not told why this happened, I could make some guesses. Because immediately after his death, Gruffith, 
the son of King Thuelan Absysis, claimed the throne of Gwyneth. Now, Gruffith's mother came from the powerful Dinevor dynasty, and his father was the beloved King Thuelan Absysis, who was a king who, like Rodria Maurdith, was so powerful he had nearly united all of Wales, and who was so successful in his rule that his reign was remembered as a time of incredible prosperity. Basically, King Gruffith was a dynastic powerhouse, uniting the old dynasty with the new. And like his father, he had plans to be more than simply a regional power. And my guess is that this appealed to the people of Gwyneth a great deal more than King Iago, who apparently spent a lot of his time hiding in Anglesey. And with the elevation of King Gruffith, that catches the story of Wales up with the story of England. A Welsh king who appears to have had everything going for him dynastically and who just happened to be taking command of a significant amount of power right as England was descending into chaos. I wonder what he'll do with that opportunity. We're now in the era of legends. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thepredictionsfreepodcast at gmail.com. You can also join us on social media. We're all over the place. And you can find links to all those communities in the community section of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.